Welcome back. It's Swing Pass part two-ish of our final weekend of the regular season recap. We left off last episode, kind of mired a little bit in West Division playoff talk. We wanted to just pick right back up where we left off. Daniel, we had finished kind of going over the first round matchup between San Diego and Salt Lake, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about what it might be like heading into that West Division Championship game that the Summit will be hosting in Denver, Colorado, and then also moving into the East Division playoff talk. So if you kind of want to like get our engine back up to speed as far as what we should expect going into the 2022 West Division Championship game. Right. So we, we talked a good amount about San Diego and Salt Lake, how it, it sort of felt that they're trending somewhat opposite direction. San Diego seems to have really figured out their offense in particular down the stretch here, and they're really doing a good job limiting turnovers and keeping their efficiency up, whereas Salt Lake, while you know, they're still capable of these big blowout games, as they've shown all season, they, they kind of do it in a little bit of a, a clunkier, less clean way. Uh, and then I think Colorado is much more of the, I, I don't know, the, the pristine, you know, clean offense, clean defense. They, they've felt like the most put together West team basically since the start of the season, but they have improved. Like their first three games, they did turn the disc over 20 plus times in the first three games they played the season, but They've, since then, zero games, over 20 turnovers. They just finished with their fewest turnovers in a game against Portland, limiting themselves to eight turnovers. And that's compared to Salt Lake, who just played Portland the day before, had what, like 22, 23 turnovers against that same team? Yep. Uh, you know, Colorado has very much felt like the, the team to beat. And I think when we saw Salt Lake go to Colorado and host Colorado, that it seemed pretty clear cut that this Colorado team was a step above the others. But I will say, I mean, they are still missing a couple guys with injuries. I don't know the status of Jay Frude or Alex Atkins, but they were also missing another cut this past game against Portland. I, I don't think. I was going to say that was, that was almost an, uh, badge of honor for Colorado. They were without Frude and Nethercutt and obviously Atkins, who's missed the past few games. But Colorado arguably had one of their most efficient performances as a team. They went 13 of 13 on Hucks without Nethercutt. Uh, Quinn Finer finished with a season-high eight assists. He finishes his rookie season, regular season, I should say, with 80 total scores and almost 6,000 total yards while completing 97% of his throws. Just one of the best offensive rookie seasons ever. And it, I, I think for me, it like dispelled some of the things that I was worried about as far as them being over-reliant on the AUDL veteran stars uh, that they have really and being though, a little top-heavy. This, this is Portland. Though. I mean, like, what... what and yet what, at the same time, they outplayed... Really... As you just said, Portland faced Salt Lake the night prior and played them a little bit better and at least forced a little bit more chaos out of Salt Lake, whereas Colorado played their best game of the se season without their two best players, ostensibly, and Jay Fruit and John Nethercutt, you know? So, I don't know. I, I, think it's, I think it's a great confidence builder for all of the other pieces in that Summit lineup. Uh, Alex Tatum... Had another fantastic game leading the Colorado D-line attack. Uh, 
Thomas Brewster again feel, filling in in spots, Matthew Agee being unleashed on offense as a receiver and looking downright fruity in at times in space, Nick Schnuschka airing out people on the D-line counterattack. I don't know. I just felt like it was one of the more impressive games for a team establishing its identity once more as they move into the postseason. Like, I think for as many blowouts as there were across the league these past couple of weeks, this Summit one felt in line with what Colorado wanted to do. They weren't just completely playing. Like, the Salt Lake game on Friday night felt like, I don't know, like an NBA Jam version of (laughs) Ultimate. Like, there was just, like... Blocks in space, blocks in space, huck into space. Like some of those shred home games have a weird energy to them. And I think it was captured again on Friday night where they, for the third time this season, put up 30 plus at home and just sort of route the opposing team right away. What was the score at one point? It was like 10 to 1. Yeah, it was 10 to 1 at the end of the first quarter, I believe. Yeah, just yeah. a ridiculous gap right away. The most Salt Lake at home game imaginable. And and yet, like you say, they commit 22 turnovers. And it's just, I don't know. It's it, it's such a, a funky and like, it, I, I'm trying to think of a way to put it, but they're like, they're like a mall character in some kind of RPG game or something, you know, like they don't hit much, but when they hit, it's for huge damage. Like they just do such massive damage when they do land their shots and it's just so decidedly different I think than how Colorado plays where obviously they're capable of that kind of uh dangerous attack but they've really I think settled into the ability to just work it like with Jackson and Landisman which is kind of their like third throwing unit they again were like their most efficient selves in their final regular season game and I know I know it's it's Portland's defense, but I think it's still worth consideration. Yeah, it it is. It's worth consideration, I guess. But I, to me, like the the concerns I would have about Colorado moving forward are those injuries to Frude and Atkins, considering they were missing. You know, the game that Frude got injured was that San Diego game. I think he went out in the second quarter, and that was, of course, the one summit loss of the season so far is when they didn't have fruit or Atkins for the majority of that game. And I guess that's my worry. Like, can their offense stay as efficient as they've looked? I, it's hard to put much weight on this. Yes, they have been, but they scored 27 in the last game against LA without fruit. And he was on the sideline. I don't know how serious it was. Like he was at the game in week 14. Yeah. And and very visible and active. It, it seems like they're resting him in lieu of not needing to win anything down the stretch here. Though. I hope so. Yeah, I hope he's... I don't know. I just... I really like the balance of their offense when he's active, when Atkins is active, because Atkins was, like, more or less a complimentary handler to Nethercut, like, for a lot of the season. And it was, like, him, Landisman, but then, of course, Matt Jackson, Quinn Finer, Jay Frude, those are all guys that can also rotate back into the backfield it almost has that dc offense quality to it when you have this lineup of guys that are all comfortable back there of course you have finer and and matt jackson who often favor the downfield space a bit more but just having that flexibility i think it it helps take the pressure off of nethercut and i i don't know i I worry a little bit without those guys but clearly like there's still going to be 
a top offense, even without them, just with the depth that they do have. What again? What worry without them? They just didn't have Nethercut, and they had their best. The wor- I'm game saying the worry. Season. The worry is the fact that they lost to San Diego without those two guys. San Diego just outperformed them. Yeah, I mean it was on the road, and it was kind of at that strange point where I think they were balancing the perfect season and their inaugural season, and not to obviously take anything away from the Growlers, but I think that like the notion that the Summit play differently without Atkins and Frude isn't quite there like i i think that they're just as efficient i think that they lose obviously their playmaking and some of their top end ability when atkins can kind of cycle into the backfield and unload a 60 yard backhand into space it changes the dimension of any kind of offense but i still think like they have a lot of that balance attack especially when finer's in there with jackson and landisman like all three of those players have been really good on their deep shots this season. Jackson is the worst amongst the three, and he's completing 75% of his hucks this year. And that's not even including Nethercut, who's arguably the best deep thrower this league has ever seen, you know? And he'll be active in the playoffs. So, I don't know. I, I, sh- I struggle to think, watching them get some of their defensive starters back against Portland, where the other West teams are going to find a weakness for this Colorado team. Cause the thing that they struggled at was their red zone conversion. And they seemed to have kind of figured out what to do. It was more of a scheming problem than a personnel or offensive, you know, playmaking problem, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think that they figured that out. And so it's like, where, where do you really attack Colorado, especially on their offense, even without Atkins and Prude, I think that, they present matchup problems kind of across the board for people. They did their red zone percentage against San Diego was one of their lowest of the season at only 65%. They were just 11 of 17 and, in that game. And I, I also just remember, you know, when Nethercut is in the lineup, those are, there's usually like a couple hucks that he will just launch past everyone. Like he, where does he rank in the league in throwaways? Like top top five leading in hucks and top five in throwaways or something like that. Like you are going to get some turnovers off of those. And I don't know. I just think having those extra balancing pieces, it helps. And I, I I would hope that these guys are going to be healthy for the playoffs. Again, I don't know how serious the injuries are, but yeah, I, I don't know. Again, I think that if you have to point to a weakness for Colorado, obviously if they're missing two very good offensive players, you would rather have them than not, is all I'm saying. Well, yeah. But uh, interestingly, they tried Spicer in the fruit role a little bit against San Diego and also against LA. Like, they were labbing it without him. And then they put AG in that role against Portland. And it was definitely just the playmaking dimension that they lacked from not having Atkins and fruit And it, I don't know, it just seems like you like AG, AG can on offense, though? I like him on defense. Yeah, I mean, I, like I think that they have enough. I think that they have enough defensive youth and playmaking and depth that they could maybe float it. I don't think that you do it maybe a hundred percent of the time, but I definitely think that it showed the potential to sort of loosen things up and give them another deep receiver to complement Finer or if Landisman cycles downfield, but. He hasn't really been doing that that much. Like Landisman has been no, huge in the backfield for them. He has been really impressive coming on of late. And one of the reasons why I'm less and less w- worried about 
not necessarily having Atkins and less and less about having Frude. Obviously, you want Jay Frude and Alex Atkins in your lineup. Again, I'm not trying to say that, but they just, they continue to improve kind of across the board in ways in which I, I'm impressed by them coming out of the West. And we talked a bit about this going into the recording, but, you know, the West Division won three out of four AUDL titles in its first four years of existence and since has not made an AUDL championship game appearance since the 2017 when the then San Francisco Flamethrowers, now defunct RIP, won the AUDL title. And this Colorado team, I think, presents probably the greatest opportunity for the West to kind of reclaim some of their uh, pedigree. But given how New York is playing this year, given how the Flyers are probably going to be very pumped up going down into the stretch to defend their 2021 title, it still feels like there's an incredible hurdle for the West to kind of get back on top. And it's not to say even Colorado is like a a given coming out of the West, you know? Right, right. I... At this point, I am still favoring them. I think even if they don't have Frude or Atkins in the lineup, I'd still favor them a little bit over San Diego. And, of course, home field advantage is going to be nice for them. They've had a fantastic home crowd all season. But I want to ask you, so fill in the blank. Colorado is the best team we've seen in the West since blank. 2017. I mean, that Flamethrowers team was fantastic. They had Bo Kittredge. It was like the last of Bo's run of real titles before it got disrupted. And then he won in 2019 with that undefeated Empire team. But he had won, what, like five straight after 2017? 2014, 15, 16, four straight. Four straight. Um, And he was like on that roster, probably their their seventh best player when he was playing at times. Like he was a little banged up that year. I remember it was like one of the only seasons where he's never really laid out. He had some kind of hampering injury, but anyways, I'm getting off onto a rant. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, I, I think since that team, this Colorado and their upside has the potential to maybe reach that kind of strata, but again, given their injuries and kind of the disruption to some of the rotations and the way that they were building, it feels like they're not quite at a peaking level. I still think that they're playing, you know, top three, top four level ultimate in the league right now. But given that they're an expansion team and given that this is going to be their first postseason and that they're probably going to have to face off against uh a San Diego team. I, I guess I shouldn't say probably. I'll, I'll, I'll take that back. Salt Lake, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> given that Colorado is going into their first postseason, I still just think that they have a lot left to prove before you can say they deserve to be on the footing of a 2017 San Francisco roster that could have been considered the best ever. I think Evan Lepler actually ranked that team as the greatest single season franchise ever when he did, did he his really? uh, all-time team rankings. Yeah. Huh. I think he put them number one in 2016 Dallas Roughnecks number two. That's he really surprising. liked that flamethrowers team. Apparently. And so, you know, I, it was five years ago now. It's weird. Four seasons, five years since the West was kind of 
the division in the league. Again, they won three out of four AUDL titles after coming into existence in 2014. And since then, obviously the Growlers have been fantastic the past couple of seasons. Aviators have represented well out of the West, but they've struggled to get wins at championship weekend. And until someone kind of breaks that narrative, it's hard not to think of the West as being a little bit depreciated given that every other division has won an AUDL title in that span. Yeah, it's the central, the south, and the east all have titles. Right. It's still just so hard to get a sense of how this Colorado team will compare to New York or Carolina or even Chicago. I mean, well, again, not not a given that any of those teams are at championship weekend, but I think that's probably what we're looking at as the favorites right now. Those are the, the 11. It's been a chalky season. The 11 and 12 win teams. Yes, that that's the list of them. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I agree. I think it is it is the best team the West has seen in a while. But, right, it's just been several seasons of the Growlers or the Aviators just losing right away. And, I, I don't know. I mean, the Growlers have looked pretty good at times in their semi-matchups. But, like, like against New York, it was just New York starting super fast. And then it took San Diego until the second half to sort of figure out that game. But by then it was too late. Against Dallas the year before, it was like they were hanging with them for three quarters. But then Dallas just opened it up late. And I don't know. It's, again, just I'm thinking out loud, like, the, the level of consistency needed by Colorado, like, as an expansion team compared to these other teams that have this championship weekend experience have the more of a track record of, of playing well in big games. It's, it's just hard to predict at this point, but I don't know. Still very high ceiling for Colorado without a doubt. High ceiling. Well, and here's one more complication to it is that they were cruising along in the middle of the season and you and I were talking about them separating from the pack in the West and whatever else. And then San Diego came along and just sort of punched them in the mouth and took that game on July 15th in San Diego. And you know, it is one of those reminders that if you don't kind of have week in, week out tests, you can sort of, I think, have a delusional sense of where you stack up against other elite teams in this league. And it's one of those things that I think interdivisional play is always pretty revealing about. And just in general, I think with this Colorado team can just be a reminder that they don't have a whole bunch of experience. You know, again, this is their first season. And so they've only had, you know, three close games so far this year. The two Salt Lake games and the San Diego game. Well, the second Salt Lake game game. was not close at all, really. That's true. It was Salt Salt Lake that had like a huge fourth quarter run to make it closer than it should have been. Yeah, so three close games. The first Portland game, the first Salt Lake game, and then the loss to San Diego. And other than that, it's kind of been big wins across the board for the Summit. And so what's going to happen when they have to play a Chicago team that's going to stack up really well against them or a New York or a Carolina, you know? Like that, that I think is something to consider with the Summit. As talented as they look, what's going to happen when they... They, cha- they get challenged by a team like that. And even, I think, in the West Division Championship game itself, I think that that's going to be a little bit of a wake-up call for a Summit team that, again, only has kind of three close matches in 12 games this season. Are you most worried about the Summit compared to the other 11 and 12-win teams 
uh, about their ability to make it to championship weekend. So amongst Carolina, New York, San Diego, and Chicago. Yeah, yeah, New York, yeah, yeah, New York, Carolina, Chicago being the other eleven and twelve win teams. I think, given the challenge that San Diego presents, yes, I feel a little bit more comfortable right now in the divisional championship games with New York, Chicago, and Carolina. Just given how those teams are playing, I, and how, given how Chicago and New York are playing of late, and given how Carolina matches up with Austin. Yeah. Just straight up yeah. heads up in a one-off game. I, I just like their chances a little bit better given that, again, Colorado is a little bit untested and that they're going to be going up against a Growlers team that just has that experience. And that's been so vital, I think, throughout this season. Should be a fun game. Should we move to the East? Should be a fun game. We got to move to the East. Let's move to the East. So the East this year, three teams, Philly in third, DC in second, New York in first. Not quite what we expected going into this season, but I think we've seen the Phoenix on the rise for a bit now, no pun intended. The Hotbirds have been hot. Uh, They close out the season with a win in Week 14 at home. Jordan Ryan going crazy with the disc. Greg Martin, Sean Mott also registering big games for Philly's offense. They will match up with DC in a round one matchup on August 13th. Philly, of course, have lost twice to D.C. this year, each by a single goal. So that first round matchup, I think, is the one that I'm circling as my most excited for playoff game to to sort of kick things off. I just I kind of expect it to be a one or two goal game again. I really like the style matchups of these teams. There's a lot, I think, of just Atlantic Coast blood feud going on like these teams don't really like each other and they both play at a highly athletic level they both like to kind of put a little bit of swagger on it you got Malks and Nissen and Rowan on the DC side and Mott and Pollard on Ryan on the other so there's just you know there's there's some personalities and some attitude in this matchup not to mention like half of the DC D-line which has really been feeling its oats these past few weeks uh has been playing tuned up and just sort of, I think, uh, uh, loudmouth counterattacking style, which is great. I think that the Bruges play really well when they play at that high-octane level, as we saw throughout a majority of 2021 when they were just kind of sprinting off of turns. I really think mm-hmm. that DC has returned to that energy of late after kind of starting a little bit slower. They're just picking up steam. They had, I think, their best defensive performance this past week, or one of, I should say. They had eight breaks against Ottawa. Uh, they had one of their lowest turnover games. Like, D.C. just seems like they're rounding into form at the right time. And I think one of the things that we talked about last season with D.C. was as good and as deep as they were, there were some diminishing returns in their ability to match up with top-level talent because Rowan wasn't playing at the level he had been playing at in 2018 and 2019, being hampered by that hamstring injury. And they just kind of lacked, I think, individuals who could stand out and make big plays in the big moment. And you saw that in the playoff game against the Flyers, where there were just some tense points where it was difficult to know what Breeze player would step up for them, right? And I think that with the additions that they've had this offseason and with Rowan re-emerging as the playmaker downfield, as we know, they don't have that kind of problem in 2022. Like with 
Christian Boxley in the lineup, with Rowan again, with Wodach playing phenomenally, Joe Richards playing better than ever, mm-hmm. Tyler Monroe just being an ult- ultimate fit piece. Like DC has a ton of options. You even tweeted about it, and I wrote about it a little bit too. Their depth of offensive production right now is unmatched in the AUDL. Yeah, it, they've had five different, yeah, no, seven different players reach over a thousand throwing and receiving yards this year. And they've kind of been on this pace since the start of the season. Like it's always been, I don't know, like eight or nine, maybe up to 10 different guys rotating in on the O-line. And, you know, even like Musa Jaw was there at the beginning of the season and he's since shifted over to D. They, they just have so many playmakers and so many guys that fit in so well to what their, you know, flowy hybrid centric offense looks like. And you, you combine that with Rowan now getting back to his pre 2021 level of play. And it's, it's just a lot for teams to handle and they, they just do it in such an efficient way every single week. I, I do want to note like turnovers per game the largest difference in turnovers per game for any of these first round playoff matchups is in this matchup between Philly and DC. So Philly is averaging 19.4 turnovers per game. DC is averaging just 14.2. That's third best in the league. I guess my, my question is, does that matter? Like, does this turnover discrepancy matter much considering how close the past two games have been the fact that they've both been one goal games and both teams have had right around the same amount of turnovers in each of those, probably decided by just one or two differential in that category. I, I don't know. I, it's like every time these two teams play, I'm like, DC is so much more efficient. Like they should be fine. But Philly just has this way of, of closing that gap. And so, so how much, think it, how much do you think turnovers will matter with these two teams? I think I think how Philly does it is that they have that playmaking factor. They have that it thing. When you have, again, Greg Martin, James Pollard, Sean Mott, Jordan Ryan, Alex Thorne running out there on offense, like you're just going to make some plays throughout the game. They've done it every game this season. It's been the best Phoenix offense probably all time. And so I just think that their ability to go out there and just kind of win discs in certain moments is a huge benefit to Philly, even if it's not always the cleanest play. You just see that in their matchups with DC. They're able to make DC brawl with them. You know, they they force DC to become a set of playmakers. The problem is that DC has those guys this year. You know, you talk about Musha Jaw switching to defense. He has been such a, a needed piece. The other, I, I mentioned earlier that one of the, things that DC lacked last season was a discernible star that would step forward on offense and how that's kind of gone away this year on defense. It was also that sometimes they lacked a big, a reliable big to go out there and just Mm kind of own deep space in one-on-one matchups, particularly against some of the taller receivers in the division, AKA against New York and jaw. Although New York players have still gotten theirs at times deep, Jaw has been terrific against the rest of the East. He's gotten a bunch of blocks in deep space and just clearly gives them a canopy level defender that takes away opponents' deep shots at times. Uh, DC gets away with a lot with team defense. They play some of the best 
team defense in deep space, but Jaw's ability to just anchor that from a singular defender perspective has really bolstered their back end, I think, this year. You mentioned the the Philly playmakers before, and I want to point out that their opponent D-line conversion percentage is third third best for the Philly O-line defense in the league. Basically, their O-line is only allowing opponents to convert right around 34% of their D-line opportunities. And how, I think you want to How's this for a sneaky stat? Flyers, Windchill, Phoenix, Growlers, Summit, Shred. Those are the top 6 teams in opponent D-line conversion rate. And those are all playoff teams. Right. I think you maybe want to say it as Phoenix hold opponents to the third worst D-line conversion rate. Yeah, it's third worst D-line conversion rate. Yeah, no, third I... best for an O-line defense. Right. Yeah. Just uh, O-line defense. <laughs> I know, I know. O-line defense that. is never, like, you never want to say those words, but we got to do it. We got to do it. But yeah, I, I'm like a strong believer in that being the difference and why they're able to keep these games so it, close and why they've played. Can we New call York it well. like, can we call it like toughness or something like O-line, O-line toughness? toughness? Yeah, I feel like that's, that's what's indicative of like, maybe you're not the cleanest offense, but even if you give some turns away, you will win those back. And that's what I feel like that list is very indicative of. Unbreakable? Should we bring Stillhouse into this? Stillhouse unbreakable offensive? Yeah. No, well, we could. We could. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, it it is unbreakable. And I feel like, obviously, Flyers are setting an all-time mark this year. They're at 10%, I think, for opponent D-line. Well, so they're they're at right around 11% for their... percentage of breaks that they've allowed compared to the total D points, but on a per possession basis, they're, oh, they're still right. leading the league with 28%. So yeah, right around three out of every 10 D line possessions will get converted against Carolina. So I don't know. I, we talk all, we, you know, I, I talk a lot about offensive efficiency, but really the teams that are good at just holding tough, being unbreakable are, are the teams that I think, are able to pull out these tight wins because that's, I don't know. It's almost like a, like a special teams type feature of the UDL. I mean, it's not special teams. I would, I would compare more to like buzzer beater situations, but this is sort of a, a hidden, a hidden stat in my mind. Does it not throw off your alarm bells at all though, that the cascades rank rank ahead, New York. (laughs) <laughs> well, this metric. like you got right up through those top six and it sounds great and yeah. then all of a sudden the cascade jump in at seven okay but then you look right <laughs> below new york to the aviators that and that's the west division coming through it's no like, no it it generally it generally is correct there's just a few red flags in there where i i start to scratch my head and wonder how you come up with some of those stats or what's at play when Seattle, which has two wins in 2022, ranks seventh ahead of a New York team that can clearly play good O-line defense. Yeah. Is that, I I wonder if it's almost like, and this is such a weird and cosmic interpretation of what's going on. So pardon me or allow me. (laughs) No, go for it. I'm excited. But it's like, 
does New York's offense not care enough because they know that their defense will just like come out there and win it or the next time they're just going to convert? So like if they make a turnover, which is rare, they're number one in the league in fewest turnovers per game, that they just like don't care enough to play defense on offense? After I'm, I'm not going to believe in that. You're not going to entertain that? No, I'm not going right. to entertain that one. All right. You can, I don't know. You can you can run with it. Maybe maybe on a subconscious level, but not. I'm sure outwardly they are they are trying to get D's and get the disc back. Yeah, but it, you could argue but, that they just have so much <laughs> so much less experience in those situations of turning the disc over and needing to get it back that maybe they're just like a little a little bit less used to playing defense in general. That I could buy into. Fine. Them not caring? I mean, come on. That's not... I know, I know, I know. That's a ridiculous statement. But I just just had to put it out there. I just had to... My brain had to come up with some kind of logic to seeing the Cascades right above them in this metric. Just doesn't make sense for how New York's playing this year. (laughs) But I do think that as close as this first-round matchup will be, we'll also get a pretty close... East Division Championship game with either DC or New York, or I'm sorry, Philly or DC against New York. So um, here, I, you, I really, I think feel like that... you, you've talked a good a bit, a good bit about how you think DC is going to pull off the upset. Do you still, you still think that? I, I didn't say that it was like a probable narrative. I just think that it's one of the better matchups for a rival against the empire. I think you kind of have to know the empire. I, I don't know how teams are going to fare against them at championship weekend when the empire can just sort of roll out in full force against them. Like I, I think that Stanley's understanding of what New York likes to do and at least game planning a little bit to make them, you know, get out of rhythm in some way mm-hmm. is the best shot at disrupting the empire. Cause just, having to go and basically the one shot all season you get at New York is at championship weekend. That just feels like such a taxing act. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's a, I don't disagree. That's just an interesting conclusion to come to that. They're New York's it, highest chance of losing is in that East division championship game, as opposed to playing, you know, in theory, one of the four best teams in the league at championship weekend. I don't disagree. It's just, it's interesting to come to that conclusion. Yeah, I just think that, you know, DC is also kind of getting into a numerical game at this point where they just have to break through at a certain point, right? I mean, it was kind of like New York against Toronto for so many years where they're just getting so close and knocking on the door so many times that through almost just statistical volume. Well, but that's, and... that's the same thing that worries me about DC's ability to beat Philly in the first round. Like the yeah. fact that yeah. Philly has kept these games so close and really should have won the last game, if not for some really bad errors down the stretch. Uh, I Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, DC has a really, really tough path ahead of them in both these rounds. Well, we should probably get at this point to kind of our recap, our debrief, our autopsy of the 2022 regular season. We're going to get into impressions versus reality, sort of what we had expected going into this season and what we came out with and 
and getting to how we got here, how we got to the last remaining 11 teams vying for the 2022 AUDL championship. And I think that we can probably start with the teams maybe that we thought were going to win those third seeds, second seeds even, I think maybe in the West that didn't come out true. You know, it's been a very chalky season. All of the division winners, I think we could say, were pretty expected. I think we had San Diego ahead of Colorado simply because they were an expansion team. Mm -hmm. But as soon as play started, it felt like, okay, Colorado is going to be right at the top of this division. So with the exception of that, like Chicago, New York, Carolina, those three winning their divisions are no real surprise. I know we had picked Minnesota a little bit heading into the season, but yeah. I think we always were kind of of the opinion that Chicago had sort of earned their stripes last year with that championship weekend appearance, and especially with how well they played the Flyers in the semifinals and just having their core back. We just wanted to see how that defense is going to adjust throughout the season, but well, Chicago has acquitted itself. Yeah, I, I don't know. I At least personally, I was kind of... I was much lower on Chicago than I was. Like, I thought they were going to be significantly worse this season than they were last season. They had pretty significant losses on both sides of the disc. It was it was Peter Graffy, Pat Trywise, Kirk Gibson, uh, Drew Swanson left, uh, Von Allen-Gillon, I don't know, I'm sure I'm missing guys, Keegan North, Nico Lake, like a chunk of their like top guys that, that were producing last year were gone at the start of the season. And and they filled those holes with some free agent signings, but it was also just guys that we didn't really know would step up into their roles, like Sam Kaminsky and, and Kyle Rutledge being a rookie this year. Like Those guys were huge for the offense. Getting Jeff Weiss back full-time, obviously incredible for the offense. So I think I, I did just have a lot of questions about Chicago that somewhat early on uh, – showed that I, I shouldn't be concerned about them anymore. But I think that D-line and the D-line uh, efficiency level that they were playing at last year at, at their t- at the top of their game when they had Kirk Gibson and Peter Graffy leading that charge, those questions that we had about that were answered really you know, around the mid-season point when they had Dalton Smith and now Tim Schock and Joe White are returning. So I, I think even... Without those guys, they've shown that they they have a lot of punch in their D line. That I I don't know. It was pretty pretty opposite of what my expectations were coming into the season. I think that yeah, I didn't expect you know kind of career years from almost everyone on their offense. That was the thing that I didn't quite expect from Chicago. I knew that they were going to come in and kind of play at a level similar to last year, but they look better. And that's, I think, the the change that I did not expect at all from the Union. Sure. I didn't think that they were, necess- they were going to slip a whole bunch, but I didn't expect them to be better than last year going in and looking at what roster they had this year. And knowing that Paul Arders only played in four games, Nate Goff only played in seven, Yeah, you know, and that they've gotten the kinds of, O-line and D-line production that they have. Shouts out to Jason Valley and Jace Brunner, who have been fantastic for the D-line at times. Yeah, I've just been really impressed with the Union's ability to kind of like step it up. It seems like the core identity of this team continues to get stronger each year. Shanahan and Barker 
played out of their minds in the back half of this season. You know, they were just kind of unstoppable at times, feeding off of Jeff Weiss taking over Pavel playing Pavel ball. Like everything just fits so well for Chicago. Yeah, well, I and think I that's the thing. I think I that's the thing that I didn't expect. I I thought that they were going to have some disruption losing a glue piece like Shrywise, who is historically great in that kind of offensive role, and they're arguably better without him. Like they're converting at a higher rate than last year's all-time record-setting uh, rate. Right. Last year, the Union set the single season record for offensive efficiency. And this year they're converting a percentage point higher while being more dangerous in deep space. Like they're a better offense by basically any measure. It's, it's kind of weird. <laughs> it is I did not expect weird. that. Oh, I know they're, I think they're completing at least maybe two more hucks per game than they were last season. They were basically the bottom and of the that's... league last year. And yeah, I mean, we always come back to Pavel's, bucket getters comments at the beginning of the season but it really is interesting how that has resulted in a more efficient offense well and that's with them completing zero hucks against madison last friday and <laughs> right. it being the perfect strategy for them in that environment they were 67 percent on offensive possessions in that game but you know, they kind of went completely away from what has been their identity all season and still played really efficiently. And I think that was a really big kind of uh, gemstone in their gauntlet, so to speak, as far as their offensive balance this year, when they just completely removed that bucket-getting dimension from their offense and still played really well on the road. And I think for them, what was essentially a must-win and just putting Madison down. I think the union really take a lot of pride in doing that right now after sort of being on the the brunt end of some season finale executions on the radicals behalf in years prior. So switching over, staying in the central division, but what were your biggest, I guess, what were your biggest surprises with Indy actually getting that third seed and then your, your biggest disappointments with Madison slipping out of that third spot. Cause I think going into the season, we both had Madison as a top three team in this division. I think I'm less surprised by Madison, given the injuries that they had to deal with in general uh, lineup inconsistencies. But as I'm saying that I'm thinking Indy lost Trey Dines and Travis Carpenter for the season and yeah. still played really, really well and earned the third seed. So I think I'm just more impressed with the Alley Cats. I know that head coach Will Drumray and his staff have been building something there over the past couple seasons. I know that this isn't just sort of blossoming now for random reasons. This has been a systemic process and overhaul over the past couple years, knowing that Mm -hmm. they were going to be transitioning out of one of the most established, aka old lineups in like 2019 to this sort of completely new era that they're in now. But I didn't expect this sort of across-the-board contributions. And I think sometimes it's hard to talk about how they're improving because you look at the top end of their stats and it's the same old names as always, sort of. You know, Levi Jacobs, Keegan North, Cameron Brock, Rick Gross. Like, those are all standbys as far as alley cats in this historical system. But they've got, you know, Carter Ray, Luke Conieris, Jeremy Keish, these 
these sort of newer era Xavier Payne, obviously leading the D line counterattack. These these newer era players who we maybe don't always highlight, but have really just sort of bolstered the ability for the Alley Cats to attack from multiple positions. And I think back to even when the Alley Cats were making Championship Weekend in 2019 and playing well in 2017 and 2018, and they were their best selves, and they sort of had that five, six wide offensive attack. Mm -hmm. And last year, they just didn't quite have that. They were too young. They were, they were, I think at times leaning a little bit too much almost on Travis Carpenter. And I think this year you see without his presence, there's still some high volume distributors in this offense, but it feels a little bit more decentralized. It feels like they've gotten a little bit more of that balance back, not having their star in the lineup. And it's sort of one of those odd things where for a young team, you obviously never want to have to go a season without a veteran of Carpenter's caliber, but having to deal with his absence, they've now sort of grown grown stronger. And it's like, what about this team when they get Dines and Carpenter backs is that they're not going to challenge Minnesota possibly for a two seed and maybe even Chicago at times, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's how well they've been playing this year. Yeah. It really was sort of filling that Carpenter role somewhat by committee, but, but yeah, it was Carter Ray and and Coney Harris who really shined in that backfield and held down the fort for the entire season. Like I, I guess I just didn't, and it, I didn't expect their throwers to really be able to thrive in that higher volume role. Like I, I guess I just didn't view Carteret or Conieris as like the answer to their backfield. I think what's also crazy is that I kind of only extended that to their offense. It goes to their defense too. You know, Nick Hutton has only played in seven games this year. He still leads the team in blocks with fourteen. Xavier Payne has obviously been their QB1 on the counterattack throughout most of their record-setting D-line efficiency season, but he's only started in nine games. And yet, Indy still performs really well without either of those players, as they showed on the road at Atlanta in Week 14, when they just kind of got out into transition quickly. They were able to kind of get some fast-break hucks and sort of exploit a, a hustle o-line defense in transition and they just ran their system as they've been running all year and as we've sort of like expectedly waited the second half of the season for their d-line efficiency to depreciate a little bit and it just hasn't and it's like they're playing without some of their best d-line playmakers they just keep getting contributions from virtually every player on the roster whenever they ask somebody to step up and it's hard to even highlight some of it because it's just it changes almost every game. I don't know if we've seen a team have so many kind of quote unquote nameless contributions this season. Right. It's like, it's like a team of, of role players basically that are all playing their roles about as well as they possibly could. And and these guys are sort of making names for themselves too. Like, you know, it kind of reminds me of DC in 2019 just a little mm. bit when they were super young, AJ Merriman's rookie year, they're coming off the MVP Rowan season when he was just everything. And he almost had like better stats in 2019, but it was kind of like Rowan and Wodach and like a bunch of developing players. Yeah. It, it, 
obviously DC has grown into a championship caliber team, but the Alley Cats remind me and just their ability of every week reminding you like, yeah, we have one more player who you haven't really thought about who can make plays for us. <laughs> right, right. Well, and fast forward from that DC team, a lot of those guys have very much made name for themselves at this point. Obviously, AJ Merriman won Defensive Player of the Year last season. Reese Bergeron, I think, was a rookie in 2019. Yeah, right, right. It was... Yeah, it was at least one of his first Nathan. few seasons. But yeah, I think I think Indy has a lot of there seems to be a lot of buy-in with this team and a lot of like development that we've been seeing over the past couple of seasons. So I'm just excited to see the continued development and then see these guys really like, you know, make a name for themselves to the point that we don't have to like refer to them as real role players anymore or faceless army. Like these guys are very talented and I think it's just a matter of time before they like truly break out and really like create this Alley Cats identity. Flip side of that, Cameron Brock leads the league again in goals with 56 this right That I season. that I did not Third see time. I'll I'll be the first to say. Third time. Seventh time in his career he's finished with 50 or more goals during a regular season. No other players obviously done that. Um when does he start to slow down? He doesn't. How many more years do you think he can keep at this level? I mean... And I know I'm kind of twisting the knife here because you were the one <laughs> doubt, casting a little bit of doubt heading into this season. I think Adam pegged it like 36 goals. It wasn't even... Yeah, right it around wasn't, there. I, again, it really wasn't doubting his ability to be that no, same I know, I know. It was just, just... It was a role thing. It was based on what we saw from him last season in those what four games that he played where it wasn't like he was the only guy getting open downfield but seeing seeing this level of dominance from him at whatever age he is in his mid-30s i i could see 34 i could see him playing for i don't know five more years like at this same level that doesn't seem like so much of a stretch to me he's 34 right now one comp you could run with, actually, would be Kevin Richardson, who's 36, just finished with 37 goals over 3,000 receiving yards. I feel like Brock could definitely approximate a season like that in a couple more years. Yeah, it's just... So then you start to think, he's at 572 career goals. <laughs> it's 249. Uh, remember when we thought he was over done second at like play. 506 or whatever it was? Yeah, so he's he's now up to 572. You've got him at, say, five more years at 40 goals a season. (laughs) Be at 770. Well, see, the thing is, I I still don't know if this is going to be his exact role as the seasons continue for Indy. Like, I do think he is valuable, as you know sort of a, a every other type cutter that isn't necessarily just streaking downfield at all times but more of a facilitating cutter you know he doesn't have the continuation throws that Levi Jacobs or Keegan North brings to the offense but just his ability to get open at will makes him a very nice safety valve in that sense and you know I, I can see if this team skews younger I, I still think providing that veteran presence and like his decision-making is fantastic. Never really turns the disc over much. That's, that's still a very valuable piece. Even if he isn't getting downfield, finding the end zone every time. 
I don't know. He's still fifth all time in goals per game. And everyone else around him on this list has played 70 or fewer games all time than him. He still averages 4.3 goals per game and 134 career appearances. It's just, it's a mind boggling stat. Like he can effectively just put on a jersey and he's going to score four times. Yeah. Yeah. He's just lace him up four goals. Easy for a decade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's your what's all right give me your final career goal prediction for cam brock i think he hits 750 i i think that's almost like a number he's picked out as somewhere around there if not higher like he might think he can play <laughs> until 45 in which case god help us all because oh, he'll probably figure out a way to do it because that's the other thing. He doesn't miss games. These aren't like, well, right. you know, a 60-goal season and then sort of missing time. Like, he has missed, I think, one regular season game when he's otherwise been active in his entire career. Yeah. Or two. That's, I think it's up to two ridiculous. Is he Is he leading the, he... the league all-time in games played also? Uh, yeah, he is. Cam Brock, yeah. Matt Stevens. I... Mike Drost, the top three. KPS climbing up. He's at 121 games played, fifth most. Goose is up there. Yep. Travis Carpenter would have launched himself into the probably top three had he stayed healthy this year. He was at 115, and he was basically playing every single game of every single year before this. So yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Kevin Quinlan at 113. I still think he's at like 32 33 so he's got he's got a couple more seasons if he wants it he could shoot up those rankings do you think anyone hits 200 games at any point oh man that would be i mean i mean five if if cam brock played five more years and he played 12 games all those five years that'd get him to 194 so sprinkle in a few playoff games maybe Ah. they maybe he plays a sixth season I think I think it's doable, but I think that's an interesting over under. Will he get to two hundred games? Man, that's <laughs> which do you think is more likely? Seven fifty goals or two hundred games? Actually, it's easy. It's seven fifty goals. Because if he hits two hundred games, <laughs> if he hits two hundred games, he'll easily hit seven hundred and fifty goals. Right. Yeah, he'd only have to average like less than three per game in those, you know, sixty six games. That's easy money for him. I think uh, we should move to the, as far as uh, impressions versus reality, we should talk about the East because going into the season, it was pretty clear it was going to be New York 1, DC 2. DC might take a game away from New York during the regular season, but it was pretty established going into the year what the pecking order was going to be at the top. Beyond that, you and I thought it was pretty much Boston, or Montreal, who we really liked coming off of their Canada Cup season. And while we were both optimistic about the Phoenix, we still thought that they were a season or two away from any kind of real impact in a playoff environment in the East. And that was not the case this year. And while Montreal started off 3-0 and and 4-1, and they lost seven of their last eight to end up... Or they lost... Didn't they lose? Or I'm sorry. They lost seven in a row. They lost eight of their last nine. Yeah. They lost eight of their last nine. 
to end up four and eight, uh, just kind of backpedaling out of the season after I think we both had a lot of expectations. But they dealt with a lot of weird absences and injuries throughout the season, I think, especially to their starting rotation. They missed Vincent Lemieux all season. Malik Ozier Samar was missing a lot of time. Christoph Tremblay Jonkos broke his knee midway through the season, I think, or his leg. Um, it was a tough season for the Royale, but Philly, I think, even with a strong Royale team, would have performed at this level. And I think that Philly was clearly the third best team by the end of the season in the East. I mean, not just in the record, but in their play, I feel like. Philly was a step beyond what else is happening in the rest of the division. For sure. And I, I think coming into the season, you know, Philly's sort of been on this, like on the cusp, you know, maybe playoff contender for a few seasons now. I mean, it really started to me, at least in 2019, when they won two games, both games against Toronto that year, which was like the last really good year Toronto had towards the top of that division. And it was sort of a, an eye-opener because Philly, like, ha- I, I feel like they've been sort of working in new pieces throughout the last couple seasons. They've sort of been on the right trajectory. I think neither of us just thought that this was going to be the year that they put it all together. But they definitely seem to have done that. They were, yeah, I agree, easily the third best team in the division this season. I, I think Boston maybe had the potential, had they fielded their, you know, top complete roster each week but as we've learned the past two years that just seems like it it might never happen at this point and then Montreal like you mentioned dealing with injuries and I don't know even early in the season like when I remember when Boston went up to Montreal they went up to Ottawa and Montreal and they lost to Ottawa the first game and then they were playing in Montreal and I was I was thinking Montreal should just like absolutely stomp this very shorthanded Boston team but I don't know. Montreal didn't really like blow anyone out this year. They they just looked a lot shakier than I was used to them seeing, and I think it was just the the context we had last year of them playing against those other two Canadian teams that are all sort of in similar rebuild type modes where they're working in a lot of new pieces and figuring out new systems. I think Montreal was maybe just a little bit put together and a little bit more. Uh, tight with their schemes that they were running. So I, it was definitely eye-opening to finally get this this test, Montreal finally playing in the rest of the East Division and seeing where they ranked. But I, I think they, they're they probably disappointed in their season. I, I still think had they gotten a little bit more luck with injuries and it seems like they could have the lineup buy-in to compete more consistently next year. But... Boston, I've kind of lost hope for, uh, if I haven't mentioned that before. Philly, I think, especially their head coach, Roger Chu, who I've been mispronouncing as Howard Chu, I think, on a prior episode. So big apologies for that. I think they deserve consideration for coach of the year. Now, while they might not win it, given some of the other cases around the league this season, I definitely think that they should be some kind of finalist just given the fact that we considered Philly to also be a little bit in a not a rebuild but a build up year given how young a lot of their roster is and yet they look like they're ready to compete with both DC and New York right now and are very much 
I think, a favorable roster going forward because, again, they're going to just continue to improve, especially on defense. This is a super young D-line that I think has exceeded a lot of my expectations heading into this year. I wasn't really sure how they were going to match up 1v1 versus some of the other offenses in the East Division, but they've acquitted themselves, I think, really well in a lot of those scenarios. And I think it goes back to the game planning that Roger Chu and the rest of that coaching staff has provided. It feels like it's sort of been the difference in some of these close games versus past seasons. Yeah, for sure. I definitely did not expect their defense to keep them in a lot of games and and have the depth necessary to compete with DC, with New York. I think also, I mean, we've talked about it plenty, but the move of James Pollard to the O-line, what would you say is a bigger uh, O-line to D-line or D-line to O-line shift this season? Was it moving Yacht to the D-line for New York or moving Pollard to the O-line for Philly? That's kind of a loaded question. I think if you if you want me to choose Yacht, we've got to frame it a little bit differently. More, more impactful. Empire is so... Yeah, again, it's going to be Pollard yeah, because I he's, be. I think, completely weaponized this offense in a way that they haven't had before. And I think it comes in tandem with Jordan Ryan, too. I think For sure. both of them, particularly with throws, have just opened up this offense. I think Sean Bott being more of a mid-range thrower and more of a lethal threat around the end zone in the red zone for this Philly offense has been such a better option than what they've run out in the past and they kind of expect him to shoulder the entire hucking load and while Mott is still you know going to be throwing it deep that's part of his identity I feel like with Pollard and Ryan especially they can sort of balance the attack a little bit more and again kind of allow Philly to attack from multiple angles. I think you see the Phoenix offense doing a really good job of sort of swinging the disc, the width of the field in order to open up throwing lanes for their throwers because Pollard and Mott and uh, Ryan can all just sort of stand still and unleash 60 yard bomb that will. And when you have Greg Martin patrolling around in deep space, it, that just is an unfair ask. Or if Pollard isn't throwing him too in deep space is quite a dangerous threat you know, he's got 37 goals and over 3,000 receiving yards this season. I Yeah, I, he's just been a difference maker for them. I mean, he's been the, the reason why I think they've gone from a team that's been considered, you know, feisty on the cusp of contending to maybe able to knock off the breeze in the first round of the playoffs. You know, I, I think that it starts with the, the ignition that Pollard has provided. And I, I think even I would say Pollard was a bigger impact addition to the O-line than Ryan. And and that's sort of considering that they've gotten a lot of production out of Alex Thorne this season, who only played six games last year. He played eight games this year. Very much a, a rock in that backfield, often working alongside Jordan Ryan. But I, I just felt that the, the new dimension that Pollard brought to the downfield spacing and of course his ability to launch hucks to Greg Martin to Sean Maud like obviously him and Ryan are like the the co you know most impactful MVPs of this Philly offense this year but I still think Pollard just with his overall ability and well-rounded skill set has really been the difference maker I would point to 
Yeah. I mean, they're just a different team this year. They have a different caliber of dangerousness to them. Like they just, I don't know. They're, they're a completely different team from a season ago and they've just made a couple of roster adjustments. Well, and it of course also comes back to the, the O-line defense that they've had and how Pollard has really led the charge. Did he set a career high in blocks this season? He might've. Yeah, he did. 14 blocks. Never had higher than 10 in the season. Had 14 blocks. Obviously, and he only played... Obviously set career highs in scoring as well. What's really crazy is that he only played 19 defensive points, too. Yeah. Still at 15 pulls on 19 defensive points. So you can tell that they were in crucial situations, probably most of them at the end of quarters. I wonder how many of those, too, would have been end of quarter blocks of those 15. That's... That's again one of those stats we need is sort of yeah, like yeah. final minute end of quarter filter. Who's end of quarter filter for defenders? End of quarter filter for throwers. Who's taking maybe an extra turn just looking at the end zone, willing to take that look? Yeah, I feel like that's always a, a needless negative on some throwing lines. But I think uh, the maybe final impression versus reality we should talk about is the West Division, just because we had such a lack of understanding heading into this year with three (laughs) expansion teams joining the fold out there against some of the more established franchises and rosters in the division in, you know, LA and San Diego. Um, And to see two of the three expansion teams take playoff spots, I think is what we kind of expected, but it's not, this well, isn't exactly how I yeah, would have I was say, anticipated. Like the expectations moved around quite a bit just in the first few weeks of the season, right? Like, I don't know. I, of yeah. course, was not expecting Salt Lake to upset San Diego in the first game that they ever played as a franchise. But then it was North like... North with 10 wins. Yeah. 10 wins is impressive. Well, but then, then I was thinking like, okay, wait, Salt Lake is maybe the best team in the West. If they can beat San Diego, who I thought was the best team, maybe it's Salt Lake. And then Portland shows up and starts 2-0. and And it's like, wow, this Portland team looks great. Colorado does the same thing. They go undefeated on their doubleheader road trip. And then I'm thinking like, wow, will all three expansion teams be like the favorites for these three playoff spots? And of course, that that wasn't even close to happening. (laughs) Narrator voice. Yeah, but it was, I don't know, I feel like I I had such a roller coaster of expectations in the West Division, you know, starting from before the season where I was like, San Diego's got the one seed locked up. These expansion teams are going to be a little shaky, kind of Boston-esque in their first year. But yes, I was very wrong about that. I think I'm surprised at the level of playmaking that Colorado and Salt Lake especially brought. I knew that they were going to be powder kegs and that they obviously had a lot of young players looking to make a name for themselves. I think I'm just a little overwhelmed at how consistent it's been. I mean, particularly with Salt Lake. They remain one of the more athletic rosters in the league, and I don't think you or I could have ever said we expected that heading into their first season. Like it was a lineup of, especially on defense, basically virtually unknowns. Clutton hadn't played in four years or something. (laughs) You know, he played a 2018 championship weekend for Dallas and he was injured and frankly getting skied a lot. Like that's the weirdest (laughs) thing to think. That's 
Pression versus reality, and I'll own up to it finally on air. I was dogging Clutton heading into <laughs> the season were. a little bit. I was very curious hearing some of the reports coming from Salt Lake about how Clutton was looking in their off-season workouts and how he was just a monster in one-on-one matchups. And I had, in my mind, the Clutton that had been playing a 2018 championship weekend when in the semifinals he faced Ben Yacht, who I believe finished with 10 goals, then the finals face Peter Graffy, who finished something like six or seven, you know, and, and I've heard since that he was battling with an injury and wasn't in any kind of the, the ability he wanted to be in. And that's been proven very clear throughout this season. And I think starting with him and just kind of working on down, like they just have so many defensive playmakers who can win them the disc. And I just didn't expect that for a West division team. That's not, what we've really seen out of teams out there, but Colorado too also kind of bring that just defensive pressure and playmaking ability that hasn't really been there the past couple of years in the West. Yeah. And, and Colorado, I think coming into the season, we knew they were going to have this nice mix of experienced and, and very good AUDL vets. And then of course, a lot of young guys coming up through the Colorado scene, but I think Salt Lake, we, we, I, I sort of doubted their even their second year AUDL vets. Like as good as they all looked in their rookie seasons, it was just a question of like how much how much of the load can these guys carry? They were all sort of complementary players in the rookie seasons, and it was just hard to see a path for a team that was just so young and so full of these rookies and second year guys. But really, from the first week onward, they just put it all together and I think they they have like one of the stronger team cultures it feels like in that division oh and you could just see it after that Joe Merrill bookends the other weekend when he came back from the injury they just rallied around their captain and it's one of those sites where I think few teams kind of get fired up over all the small things as consistently as the Salt Lake team does <laughs> right and it, it's going to be it's going to be their crucible and their balance heading into the postseason is how to manage that. You know, it's it's such a potent energy for them to have. But as you saw against Colorado, if it if they don't kind of catch fire, they can get frustrated with themselves. And I think you've even seen it in the back half of the season when they've sort of had these. I don't know how to typify these wins that they're having because you can't call them ugly. They still just blew out. <laughs> they're just a little messy, but they're, they're a little messy. Yeah. They're, they're, they're messy, but it's sort of their style. Like they're leaning it, they're brawlers. And, but like, I'm losing my train of thought, but I, I like them a lot. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting them to be at this level heading into year one. If anything, I was kind of expecting Portland to be in this position, but that is, definitely not been the case do you think your expectations for san diego changed at all throughout the season or you know after that first week loss to salt lake they're strangely about where i expected them to be at this point in the season i think throughout the season i've been gauging them differently and absolutely after that week one loss at home i I think I went into that saying that they might win pretty comfortably, that that was a big ask for Salt Lake to have to defend Dunn and McDougal in their first ever game as a franchise. But Salt Lake just outplay made the Growlers and immediately established their identity and ability to do that in the West Division. And I think that 
you know, it's it's been recalibrating where the Growlers fit with these expansion teams, but they're they're about where I expected them to be. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe maybe a slight shade behind Colorado, but definitely I think considering themselves able to punch with them, and I think that that's what's going to kind of keep them alive. I think that Colorado you know, you can pretty easily say that they have a talent advantage and that there's a pretty discernible gap at this point, but Growlers are just going to battle. Like, they are the battle-tested team. They are the team amongst these three West Division playoff teams that can say they've been there before. And I know I've kind of been hammering that home the past couple of weeks, but it's proven to be really important. (laughs) Like, that's a really important quality in the AUDL playoffs is we've won a playoff game before. For sure. Yeah, I think I probably have San Diego winning... 10 games again prior to the season. They won nine. They got close. It was that that weird doubleheader road trip that they had to Salt Lake in Colorado where they really didn't bring much of their top roster that I, I think it's it's hard to read too much into those matchups, especially with how they played yeah. that round two game against Salt Lake. Like that was just, you know, we've talked about it, their ugliest game of the season. I think after that first week game to Salt Lake, it, it was like, it was, it was how Salt Lake won that made me a little bit worried about San Diego and the fact that San Diego had sort of had a moment in either the third or fourth quarter where they did sort of take back the lead and it, it looked like they were probably going to open the game up from there and Salt Lake was maybe going to lack this four-quarter AUDL consistency. But the fact that Salt Lake just responded immediately and just like ran with that game and really closed it out I still think it made me more, it was more like a a good thing for Salt Lake as a a worry for San Diego. But in the back of my mind, I, like I said, I I think I, I was maybe thinking that San Diego was just going to get passed up by the other three expansion teams. Of course, Portland, I don't even know if we have to talk much about the season that they had. Uh, Very disappointing and just probably never really going to have a chance at, one of those three playoff spots. But I think San Diego has has been as expected as the season has gone on, like really rounding into shape and figuring out their rotations and upping their offensive efficiency to levels that we've seen sort of historically in recent seasons. They, they do this over the course of a season, really figure things out down the stretch. And so that that to me has been as expected with them. Okay, I said that that was the last one, but we'd be remiss to not talk about the South Division and particularly Austin and Atlanta vying for that second playoff spot and final playoff spot in the division behind Carolina. We expected Carolina to hold serve and protect their crown and kind of win out this division. But I think safe to say we did not see the soul winning anywhere close to nine games. No. And I know that we've talked at times about the depreciation of Dallas and Tampa in the division, but at the same time, I think that Seoul even having a distinct advantage on the hustle and winning that second matchup, all importantly, really goes to show you, like Philly, how much quicker the Seoul have kind of realized their potential than maybe we assumed going into this season. It is pretty amazing that Austin beat both Atlanta and Carolina playing at home. I, th- I think that was that was something we maybe thought they had a chance of like getting one win against one of those top two teams, but 
to beat them both and especially to win that Atlanta game the way they did when it was absolutely a must-win game for that second playoff spot, this this team has just had this energy to them really since last season as they've started to shift the narrative in Texas and to see everything really come together this year and see their new offense with Hanky back integrated, Mark Evans, Swiatek, the whole crew. It's it's a really fun team to watch. Jake Radak had one of the best rookie seasons for a handler that we've seen in recent years. I think I think the Austin culture is is right up there with Carolina as far as the South Division goes. And it really just excites me more about their future looking forward. But back to their win-loss record, I think we said we'd be impressed if they got to, like, six wins? Six. Six. But I think a lot of that, that a lot of that was they played five games against Dallas. So I think we sort of expected them to go maybe three and two against Dallas, maybe having a chance at four and one. So that that did play a pretty big role. But I, I will point to those two key wins against Carolina and Atlanta as like definitely the most surprising aspect of their season. I think as good as their offense has been and as much as they've impressed me with their overall play and it wasn't quite the level that I thought that they were capable of this year, it's been the defense for the soul team that has really kind of turned me on my head as far as what I can expect from this team because mm-hmm. they're young and yet they're playing like one of the top counterattacking units in the league this season. They're, I think, top five right now in D-line conversion rate. They're sixth. They're sixth in the league. Jake Reinhardt, Joey Wiley, Matt Armar have been fantastic on the counter. And then from there, Mark Henke, Oliver Fay, Eric Broadbeck, Eric Carter, they all get out and run whenever there's defensive opportunities to put home. And I just feel like you saw it against the Cannons. When there's opportunity for them to convert, they seize it. They did it in that win at home against Carolina. They did it against uh, Madison on the road. They had scan opportunities and they punched him home. You know, it's it's been the the quieter part of the identity because of how kind of star-laden their offensive rotation has been and as many highlights as Swiatek and Evans and Henke are going to contribute and Radak too. Mm-hmm. Um, their defense, I think, has been one of the more impressive parts about their successes this season. You know, not only do they... They counterattack well, but they match up really well. You know, Reinhardt has been playing great. Wiley has been a pest the past two seasons in this league. Uh, Armour, you know, is a first-year player with the soul and has been performing, I think, above expectations. And he came in with some high pedigree coming over from the Dallas franchise. Oliver Fay is playing great in his rookie year. Eric Carter looks great as a handler defender in this unit. They just have a lot of good players that they can match up with you. Uh, Elliot Moore, when he's been available for them, has played great on defense. You know, they just, they have options. And I think that that bodes really well for any kind of playoff scenario. Because as much as you like to have balance on offense, having depth on defense and an ability to keep pressure up for four quarters is going to be essential, especially against the Flyers right out of the gate. I did not realize how key the additions of Matt Armour and Jake Reinhardt would be to Austin. Both guys playing for Dallas for a few seasons before 
but really be- quickly became the D-line quarterbacks. And Reinhardt handles most of the pulling duties for Austin, too. I don't know who was doing most of the pulling last year for them, but that's another underrated part of the game that we don't talk a ton about, but like the really good pullers in this league. Reinhardt handled 199 pulls this year. The next closest player on the team pulled 22 times. Just having that consistency back there to start off your D-line possessions is really key. But yeah, it's it's that that D-line conversion rate definitely did not expect it to be that high. And it, it really is like a, a wide range of playmakers that we've seen shine for this old defense too. And they're quote-unquote a little undersized, like, they run Pollock out there on defense a lot, but when they don't have him on the field without Walter available much of the year, they don't have like a traditional big and it's been Reinhardt taking over that duty. Faye has been good on opposing bigs and they mm-hmm. do well with just help defense and using their young athleticism to sort of test the legs of opposing offenses. And that was, that was not something I expected coming into this year. You know, that was not, a feature of any kind of Austin team in years past was an ability to sustain four quarter pressure on defense. Yeah, definitely not. Is, is Mick Walter, by the way, has he been battling injuries this year? I know he was last year a bit, um, or he was coming into the season, but I feel like he's someone that we, we haven't like talked much about with the sole defense and with how he ended last year with that seven block game against Dallas it it always felt like this was kind of going to be his defense but I think the fact that that they've gotten so much production aside from Mick Walter I mean he's played seven games this season I'm looking now um it really just shows how much the identity of this defense has shifted well and that's the real surprise right like what if I told you the Austin soul would have (laughs) a top six defense Well, that's my point. Mick Walter will only have four blocks and start part time yeah. in seven games. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like that's the real turnaround, and I think you know you. We talked about going into the season that Hanky and Swiatek. We didn't really know what to expect from Evans. I, I mean, the team didn't know what to expect from Evans. Let's be quite honest. Like, head coach Naji told us that when we interviewed him a few weeks ago, but we knew it's Swiatek. <laughs> and Hengi that they were going to have a lot of receiving talent on offense. We didn't know what to expect from this defense aside from McWalter. And again, they they played excellent in 2022. But I, I think it's time for us to once again wrap up this, this longer sort of regular season recap part two episode here on Swing Pass. We will be taking a break from our normal two podcast rotation next Tuesday as we will not have any games to recap after this weekend. We are on a bye week before AUDL playoffs begin on Saturday, August 13th. So on Tuesday, we will also be taking a slight bye. We will return a week from today on Thursday to preview the opening round of playoff action. Thank you so much for tuning into Swing Pass. Be sure to follow along at theaudl.com and with AUDL social media as more and more playoff and 2022 AUDL Championship Weekend information becomes available. That is coming up in just over three weeks here in Madison, Wisconsin quote-unquote the capital city of ultimate been known to say it on some radicals broadcast but 
Should be a hell of a time if you're interested in coming out. Definitely check out the information available for Championship Weekend. Again, it will be posted on all of the league channels. And yeah, just thank you one more time for tuning in, and we will talk to you soon. Bye now.